Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Naturopathic Health Doll, an interview with Dr. Veronica Leslie. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Veronica Leslie. Dr. Leslie is a 35-year-old U.S. and U.K.-educated naturopathic medical practitioner from California. Dr. Leslie completed her undergraduate work at California Polytechnic University, graduating with bachelor's of science degrees in agribusiness and food marketing. She then continued her studies at the College of Naturopathic Medicine of the United Kingdom, earning a diploma in biomedicine, nutrition, and an additional master's level diploma in nutrition. Dr. Leslie grew up in a rural agricultural environment in Fontana, California. During her youth, she estimates that she was bitten by ticks hundreds of times. She said because she was a tough farm girl, she would just throw ticks off when she found them biting her. In 2017, after a trip to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where she had been bitten by mosquitoes and biting flies, she began to exhibit the symptoms of a vector disease. First, she began to show a rickettsial rash, and the symptoms regressed for seven months until she finally tested positive for several tick diseases, including Lyme disease, Ehrlichia, Bartonella, and Babesia. Today, Dr. Leslie describes herself as 100% in remission from her tick disease and vector diseases. Hey, Dr. Veronica Leslie, and welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks for having me. Can you share with our listeners what you were like and what your background was like before you began to show the signs of a tick disease? My original background was in agriculture, so I'd been exposed to potential vectors and things my whole life, you know. Um, but I was a tough farmer girl, so I just kind of would throw the ticks off or whatever, and it wasn't really a big deal. Later on, I ended up going to complete a naturopathic education and um, some nutrition diplomas as well. I had had some bouts with hormone issues, and so I overcame that, and that was just something that I really wanted to further study, and so I did. Um, I worked as a caregiver for a while. I was actually a caregiver to my grandmother, who was an Alzheimer's patient, and then I set out to start up my own practice. And, you know, just when I actually went into getting ready to really finally start my life is whenever all that started happening to me. Dr. Leslie, you have been diagnosed with uh, suffering from Lyme disease. And one of the things that's interesting about the pre-podcast interview we had with you is we didn't get to discuss how you believe you became the victim of uh, Lyme disease. Can you share with us how you think or what vector caused you to suffer that pathogen? I really just had a very stark downhill spiral after uh, visiting Wyoming. I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And um, upon coming back from that trip, I had a bunch of dots all on my leg, which at that time I thought perhaps was a bunch of mosquitoes or biting flies. And, you know, I didn't really think much of it. I had a bunch of gastrointestinal symptoms. And so when those marks really didn't go away for a long time, I knew something was weird because I was never a person that, first of all, was even targeted by mosquitoes really previously. They didn't like my blood, you know, and that's when everything just really started happening. And I kept thinking maybe it's Giardia or I kept thinking other things. And, you know, those weren't what I was finding to be the answer. So I, you know, thought, okay, I'll go on a gut protocol. I'll try that. That didn't work. And then, you know, just one after another, all those classic symptoms just started popping up. And, you know, eventually I had to go and find my own answers. But that's how it started for me as far as just the beginning of the unraveling of everything. So what do you think caused you to suffer this disease? Was it contact with a mosquito? Was it contact with a tick? Or was it something else? 
You know, I believe it had to have been mosquitoes or the biting flies that they have there, where I was particularly, which was right off the Snake River, which has some stagnant water, perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes, the biting flies. I really don't think it was a tick. Um, I'm very familiar with tick bites. I'd grown up getting hundreds of them, so um, and had not had any issues up until that point. Of course, the alternative argument could be that, you know, I, I'd been infected with Lyme disease, but it was not active because I had had a robust and strong immune system. I was on top of my health. You know, it could have been the catalyst of going to Wyoming and getting bit, which I know from Wyoming, I definitely did get Ehrlichia. So that could have been the final, you know, straw that broke the camel's back that unleashed maybe Lyme that I had already had, or it could have been where I contracted everything. That part will never potentially know in full, but what happened in Wyoming definitely was part of the catalyst to bring down everything else. How do you know that you contracted the Ehrlichia in Wyoming? Well, in hindsight, I realized, oh, that was my, you know, Ehrlichia rash, the classic rickettsial rash all up on my leg um, that had eventually spread. But what I really didn't factor in at that time was any other type of tick illnesses. I was just thinking, well, this isn't the Lyme rash, um, you know. But later on, when I actually did start treating my infections, and I had tested positive for the allergia later, and then that's when I had made the connection. And when I started treating this, the whole full-blown rash came out again, the rickettsial rash. And so then I said, yep, that's what happened. I got infected with ehrlichia in Wyoming. And so I didn't know if, like I said, that was something that all happened nonstop shopping there, or if it's something I'd had, and that one ehrlichiosis exposure is what sent me over the edge to have everything come out. Now, are you sure you didn't have your ehrlichia exposure from a tick bite? Um, I mean, it's possible, you know, you never know. And that's the thing with this disease is that we're not necessarily sitting there and shaking the hands and greeting our vectors and knowing exactly who or what is, you know, giving us these terrible life altering diseases. But I really just don't think that it was a tick because the way that the bites were, were not consistent with any of the tick bites I'd ever had in my life. And I have had so many. So I just really feel that that was not what, I mean, there might've been a tick that bit me in addition to perhaps mosquitoes, you know, I'll never know, but I, I just felt, and that's part of why I did not get on top of this as soon as I did is because that I felt that there was no tick bite. If I had even had the slightest inkling that that was a tick bite on my skin, I would have probably been more proactive in looking for solutions associated with tick-borne illness, as opposed to me thinking this was some sort of attack from biting flies or fleas um, and really just like passing the buck on it. Dr. Leslie, how did the tick bites that you had received in the past present differently than these or, or whatever contact you had with a vector in, in Wyoming? So the tick bites I'd always had before generally had some sort of like almost like little lump. It would feel almost like a little cyst or a little, little rock or pebble underneath um, the area of irritation. And these particular rash markings did not. Also, they were almost like really large scale, like petechiae, which was like bleeding under the skin. So it was like a bunch of dots of basically blood underneath the skin, which I figured to have been some sort of histamine response in response to the mosquito bite, because mosquito bite saliva obviously is really um, irritating to people. And I didn't have any of the particular itching. I didn't have any little knots or anything underneath the skin. So it was just completely different for me than what I had experienced with any other previous tick bite, which is why I just never even connected that that would have been potentially from a tick if it was. 
So how did your symptoms develop when you got back from Wyoming? So I had had that rash about a day or two before returning back home. And when I came home within a couple of days after that, I really just started having intense gastrointestinal issues. So I went from being a person who had awesome digestion to being somebody that was seriously on the verge of being very, you know, dehydrated and not able to keep any food in me. I mean, I had probably diarrhea for over three weeks and it may not sound like it's a big deal, but when you actually literally do go through that, it can become an issue. It can become a serious issue. So that was my first real way that I experienced the tick-borne illness or the vector-borne illness, um, which was the Ehrlichia and what I would later find out was some Babesia, Bartonella, and all, all the other classic friends of Lyme. I had gastrointestinal issues that I thought were Giardia. I tested for that, didn't have it. I then had some arthritis symptoms, you know, that migrating joint pain. And then later I started having some more severe pains, one of them in between the shoulder blades um, and up through the base of the neck. I would feel frozen. I would feel um, as though my muscles were being twisted and contorted. I would feel at my worst like coyotes were opening me up and eating me alive. It was bad. Now, there was also some cross-exposure with mold around that time. So that, of course, impacted all of this. Another potential catalyst, of course. And then from there on, it just became all those other things that usually a lot of Lyme patients talk about, the tachycardia, some of the other co-infection symptoms like from Bartonella, which include like some head pressure and just some, you know, emotional or mood destabilization and I would have periodic rashes as well. I'd get some twitches and little tremors. And I just also had the cosachondritis, which is going to be like an inflammation right under there of the ribcage lining, those muscles. That was hard. It was hard to breathe. So I felt like a bunch of bikers and the Hells Angels had jumped me on a daily basis. And, you know, it just kept going downhill from there. And I went to several different sports medicine, physical therapists, chiropractors to see if it was some sort of structural issue. It wasn't, I didn't get better. And I just finally clicked to me that, you know what, this is Lyme disease. And I tested and it was negative. Of course, like many patients, I, I see 80%, I would say to 50% somewhere in that window, don't pass the ELISA testing. And if I would have just accepted that, who knows where I would be, but I didn't. Went on and did bioresonance later. And I did confirm as being positive with many of the Lyme pathogens. It wasn't until months later that I actually was able to show that on a Western blot. Um, and again, um, you know, this is the standard of care, which most people are forced to, you know, have to be at the mercy of, you know, a doctor to order for them. And I was able to get this on my own. So that really helped. But, you know, if I didn't, I don't even want to imagine where I'd be right now. Now, Dr. Leslie, you indicated during this answer to our question that you had a number of different co-infections. And I'm not a big fan of using the term co-infection because I think that devalues other tick diseases. But were you capable of contracting those other co-infections from a fly or from some other non-tick vector? Well, you know, that's a really good question. So Potentially, many of these co-infections are things that I might have already had, and they were just something that the body had learned to deal with, as our body is designed to do. It's designed to deal with the pathogens in our environment. Um, you know, it's not just the pathogen theory. It's also terrain and the environment and how your body can handle it. It's this ecosystem between the two. Um, so I'm sure that I had had Bartonella all my life, um, having, you know, grown up around 
a bunch of animals. My sister had cat scratch fever. Um, and so that was probably something that I'd been living with that was not an issue for me. Maybe the same thing for mycoplasma, maybe even the same thing for Babesia, but who really knows? Those were things that never manifested in my life prior. I never had any issues um, with those pathogens if I was in fact carrying them. You know, Lyme disease could have been something, the Borrelia, for example, could have been something that I had had in the previous portion of my life as well. We'll never really fully know. Um, but, you know, I would have to agree with you. The co-infections, even though that might not be the word you want to use, I use it because it's the most identifiable way to include and scope in all these tick-borne or vector-borne illnesses. But they can be worse than the Borrelia itself. And in fact, that's what was my case. The Bartonella for me was much worse than the Borrelia. By the time I got to treating the Borrelia, it was a walk in the park. It was a piece of cake compared to having went through the Bartonella. Dr. Leslie, you mentioned that you had a negative ELISA test, which is not uncommon at all, and then you had a bioresonance test to confirm your suspicions of Lyme disease and other co-infections. Can you describe for our listeners what that bioresonance test is? Yeah, so it is something that's actually used widely in Germany and a lot of parts of Europe. It's not accepted here as diagnostic criteria. You can use it for functional medicine testing, but you won't receive an actual sanctioned CDC diagnosis of Lyme by using this test. Um, however, when you're suffering, you don't really care about labels. You just want to get better. And that's why most people will turn to this. And it's because it works. So I got introduced to this testing from another Lyme patient who had healed after spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to no avail. She used this testing and this treatment in Germany, brought it back and founded her own company here in the States. I use this and it pretty much is what saved my life. It uses photonic oscillation particles. So it measures frequency. And just like you can turn into your TV station and watch your favorite show or your radio and turn into that frequency and hear your favorite DJ, you can do this with the body. So each pathogen, each life form on earth has its own respective frequency. And by measuring the frequencies in the body using this photonic oscillation particle technology, we can find pathogens in the body. And the best part about this is it's not dependent on your immuno response. So if you aren't producing antibodies to a pathogen, because let's say you're immunocompromised, or let's say that this pathogen has hijacked you um, and has, you know, shut off that differentiated cell response of antibodies, because that's how it in fact, you know, targets you and gets the upper hand in the body, then you will still test positive. So there's a lot of good to this testing because the people who that they can't, for whatever reason, you know, show positive on the CDC sanctioned testing or even other functional medicine testing like PCR, they can find these pathogens in the body this way. And I work with this extensively. And I always, when I give this test to people, I ask them, you know, their feedback as far as how they enjoyed it or the relevancy they felt that it played in their health. And I've not had one single person not tell me it was that it wasn't the best test that they ever did in their life. So it really overcomes many of the limitations of the traditional Lyme and tick disease testing. In my opinion, absolutely. So based on that, did you start your treatment protocol after your positive bioresonance test, or did you wait for the positive Western blot to confirm? I did order the Western blot, and in the midst of waiting for that result process to go through, I then, of course, began massively researching everything to do with Lyme disease, mostly from a functional medicine standpoint, but also familiarizing myself with the standard of care. In doing so, that's when I started learning things like the success rate for antibiotics was not what I was, what I was predicting. And I started deciding what was going to be my treatment protocol, you know, in case that this did come back positive. But I had pretty much made up my mind that I was going to treat this regardless. So finally, when I did get that confirmation back is when I decided to proceed with the immunotherapy and go with, you know, the whole 
pre and during and post Lyme plan that I had designed for myself. So Dr. Leslie, in your pre-interview questionnaire, you had mentioned that you tested positive for two mycotoxins as well. Can you talk about what a mycotoxin is and how you got a positive diagnosis with that? Mold is becoming an ever prominent issue. That's for several reasons. First of all, our housing here in the United States is wood frames for the most part, drywall. This is very conducive to growing mold, not like concrete or clay housing that's used in other parts of the world. And so Wi-Fi actually magnifies the growth of mold up to 600 times. So we're putting a bunch of 5G into everywhere and now we're seeing crazy mold problems like never before. Anyhow, long story short, I had had suspicions that there were some mold issues going on, but I did not want to be somebody that was, you know, I'm a tough girl, right? So I didn't want to be somebody that was overestimating its role in my illness. But in this bioresonance test, it actually will scan for mycotoxins and for mold. And I came up with a couple molds. I came up with, which is actually a common outdoor mold, and that didn't really play much role in my health, I'm sure. But I also tested for Alternaria and the mycotoxins from that. And um, I also had ochratoxin. So this was something that at that point really opened my eyes. And I said, okay, this is probably indeed playing a role in my health. And so I started treating for that as well. And I noticed, I noticed a massive difference in um, just a couple weeks of how much better I was getting from that. And, you know, mycotoxins and mold are going to be a little bit different. They're not one and the same thing. Mold is going to be the source. It's going to be that actual living mold that you would see like in your house. And when those little gray and black spots are green, depending on what type of mold it is. And the mycotoxins are actually the biotoxins that come from this mold. So these molds, unfortunately, will produce those biotoxins. And for the most of us, that's what really makes us really sick. That's what can really stimulate that chronic inflammatory response. That can be the catalyst to taking our immune system down and providing that immunosuppressive status that allows us to be more vulnerable to other pathogens, including Lyme and other co-infections. And so that's something that, you know, when you factor into your treatment, you need to, of course, address mold and eliminate that from your immediate area. And you need to address mold exposure. But the mold is generally going to be more aggravating in an allergenic type of way. People that they'll get that, you know, itchy nose, the tickly nose, or they'll start having blepharitis, maybe some rashes, things like that. But the biotoxins can be what start doing things like, you know, um, changing or impairing your vision, allowing us to have, you know, pain issues or other like neurological symptoms. So there's a stark difference between the two. They don't always come hand in hand, but oftentimes they do. As an IT professional, something you said really caused me to, to pause, that Wi-Fi magnifies mold growth up to 500 times. I know that Klinkhart has posted about some research in regards to um, having mold in a controlled environment, which would have meant no Wi-Fi and having mold with Wi-Fi. And they have found that the mold with the Wi-Fi exposure actually grew 600 times more. And it's a really crazy thing when you think about it. But if you understand how the electromagnetic wavelengths work and their effects on human physiology, it's not unsurprising that it would do the same thing for mold. There is this very cellular stimulating type quality that we get with these you know, magnetic waves. And that's why some people report feeling wired and not being able to sleep. And we have some hyperactivity disorders with children now because they're always on tablets. So for me, it's not something that I immediately thought of or made the connection with. But once that I read about this study, I said, wow, I mean, it makes perfect sense. So in addition to Wi-Fi, is the same true for like the 4G cellular networks that our cell phones work off of and now how most of the world is moving to this 5G network? 
Absolutely. And in fact, I think that that's why we're seeing, you know, a lot more chronic health issues than we did before and pathogens that they didn't previously really cause us so much grief being the reasons why some people's lives become destroyed. It's because of this immunosuppressive effect that we get from Wi-Fi and all these other cell towers and just daily exposures. And what's scary is that we're continuing to raise that dosage, you know, with 5G now going everywhere and who knows what's going to be next. (laughs) Now that you basically self-diagnosed yourself with Lyme disease and these other diseases, what were your first steps to start to heal yourself So the first thing that I did um, was to use essentially a homeopathic version of low-dose antigen therapy. And so what that is, is in particular, you take the pathogens that you are trying to treat or believe are stimulating the immune system to a detrimental level. In my case, I began with a Borrelia babesia series, and what this had were deactivated babesia and Borrelia burgdorferi pathogens. I take this sublingually every three days in ascending dosages and then in a descending dosage. This protocol takes two months. I did notice a huge difference after only a couple weeks. And so, again, what this is designed to do is to help downregulate that first innate immune response that is the one that releases all the histamine, the inflammation, and just drives the body bonkers in order to stir up the other part of the immune system, which is the more targeted cell-differentiated response to infection. And so in doing that, I started seeing a major reduction of my symptoms because as I said or mentioned before, that most of these symptoms we get are not just from the pathogens, they're from our immune system's response to the pathogen. So therefore, by modulating that, we get some symptom relief, but also in being able to downregulate all that inflammation in the body, it allowed my body to actually really start healing. My body also was able to start understanding what it needed to target you know, by being confronted with this daily sublingual exposure of the microbes. I did every three days, the massive dose, but in between I did boosters on on a daily basis. And so I did this for two months. Um, I did not treat at all as far as like herbals, antibiotics, anything like that. I didn't do anything else besides this and some supportive nutritional therapy. And then after those two months, I then proceeded to use herbal medicine, herbal medicine specifically targeted for the respective pathogens that I wish to eradicate or bring under to more controlled levels in the body. So I use, you know, everything from Chinese skullcap to um, Chinese senega to all of the other popular ones, such as cat's claw, Japanese knotweed. Um, I use hutinia, I use statis, geez, uh, cedacuda, stephania. I use cryptolepsis, andrographis. Um, I used a bunch and I would alter what I was taking according to some symptoms or what I believed to be most active at the time. So it really was something that I was in touch with myself about, you know, and it would be probably hard for somebody that they're not familiar with herbal medicine to, or, you know, the Lyme ideology, how to navigate that on their own. But I did do it that way. And I do believe that that was why I was able to be able to get the upper hand on this disease and, and ultimately heal. Put it back up to the low dose antigen therapy that you took. You mentioned that you took it sublingually, and I just I don't know what that is. And and can you clarify that for both me and our listeners, please? Yes. So that would be under the tongue. So this is going to be under the tongue because we can actually start with differentiated cell response from underneath the tongue. We can start building immunology directly from under the tongue. Our first protective forces are right there in the mouth. And so by doing this sublingually, we leave it there for 30 seconds to a minute before swallowing, but that just allows for some activation for that immunological activation to start processing. Also, I've just found that sublingual application is much safer than other methods. And in general, if you're doing 
any type of low-dose antigen or low-dose immunotherapy, that is going to be sublingually given. But just in general, I'm saying, because there are some, you know, like allergy shots, for example, or other immunomodulating treatments out there that they are sub-Q, so meaning that they're going into the flesh, they're shots, and that can pose some risk for us. That sometimes people will have like a, you know, anaphylactic reaction and stuff like that. There is no risk of those dangers happening when you do a homeopathic series kit, which basically is working on the premise of like low-dose immunotherapy. And just to summarize the first step of your treatment protocol before you started to take the herbs to really attack the Lyme bacteria, that was really meant to help your immune system sort of calm down and, and come down from that overreactive state and normalize it to a normal immune system state. Is that correct? Yes, yes. That's a very common issue that many Lyme patients go into, and it's this super heightened flare of the immune system, which becomes a problem all on its own. And of course, we want the immune system to be intact. We're not trying to shut it off the way that steroids would. That's how that conventional medicine responds to any type of autoimmune conditions or an immune system, which is causing a lot of havoc or releasing histamine. It just wants to shut it down. That's not the answer. Low-dose antigen therapy does not shut down your immune system. It modulates it. There's a huge difference when it comes to that. Because ideally, what we're trying to do is balance those two different types of immune response, that first responder and then that later adaptive response. Steroids are going to just shut that down, you know, period. That's not good because then we really lower our immunity and we can become even more vulnerable to other infections. By doing the low-dose antigen, we're downregulating the type of immune system that is kind of being problematic for us at the time, and we're trying to enhance the one that we need to actually help us target the infection. And now this is your first step because once you start targeting the Lyme bacteria, you want your immune system to work hand in hand with these herbs to then eradicate or kill off this bacteria. Absolutely correct. And also too, to mitigate symptoms, because if we have a better immunomodulated response to treatment, it means less inflammation, less reactivity, less herxine, and it means an increased healing time as well, faster healing time. And what exactly is low-dose antigen therapy? So what is an antigen? So antigen is going to be basically that DNA molecule that is associated with that particular type of pathogen. The body is going to then see this, um, and it's going to start learning its target. So it's kind of like if you were to have your team that's on a, a special mission with the police force, and you sit them down, and you show them all the pictures of the bad guys, and you say, this is who you need to get, all right? as opposed to them going in blind and not knowing what they're dealing with and trying to guess who's the bad guy and who's not. As a patient, what effects did you feel during the first stage of your treatment, the low-dose antigen therapy? Were there any positive effects? Were there some negative effects? Absolutely. So the first three days or so, maybe three to five days, I did feel a little bit more achier, felt tired. It was not at all something that I could not deal with. But it wasn't until probably like the end of the second week that I just really started having a stark turnaround. The POTS style symptoms that I had had back then, which included the tachycardia, the really super low blood pressure, the weak legs, extreme tiredness, all of that was just literally disappearing overnight. And I mean, I even usually hesitate to describe it like that because I know some people will listen and think, I want this now, that's the answer to my problems. Um, and they may or may not have the same results as I did, but for me, it was near miraculous. And so I, of course, was very interested in immunotherapy after that because of the positive results I'd had. And after there, I just really started, you know, improving. Dr. Leslie, is antigen therapy just a traditional immunization therapy that would be used, for example, with chickenpox or some of the other vaccinations we would take as children? You know, it's interesting that you asked that because, you know, there is some history 
for us to believe that the idea or premises of vaccinations first began with homeopathy um, and that this was actually utilized to help allow individuals to have a natural immunity against you know, certain pathogens in their environment. And that's, of course, probably under severe attack or scrutiny in today's modern age where we have the climate we do regarding vaccines. So technically, I cannot say that that is equivalent to vaccines. However, I will say that, yes, if you want to utilize those for those premises, you could potentially see some altered immune function that could be beneficial for you as far as protecting you from those pathogens in the future. So Dr. Leslie, if our listeners are interested in this low-dose antigen therapy, which was a near miraculous turnover for you, where would you point them? Well, you'll want to go to a functional medicine practitioner. You'll want to go to a naturopath. Some MDs do offer this as well. I've been seeing more patients that are coming to me having already done this therapy from an MD or a DO or Lyme literate medical doctor. I use this in my practice. So I use it not just for chronically ill or Lyme patients. I will use it for someone, for example, who has HPV um, and maybe needs to get rid of it. I've had someone that had HPV, for example, we cleared it and then it came back a couple years later. Um, We're going to be putting them on the kit again because I've seen this work, for example, with people with shingles to suppress it from ever coming back, providing we use obviously that that respective, you know, herpes zoster pathogen. So it's really useful in many applications, not just as it pertains to Lyme disease. You can get a pathogen that you happen to be having trouble with. And if you do this immunotherapy, it can basically help your body to suppress that activity of the pathogen in your body from there on out. Dr. Leslie, I have to ask, normally we hold this information for the end, but if any of our listeners were interested in speaking with you and seeking your your homeopathic services as as a doctor, can they not only contact you both locally, but you do teleconferences for doctor visits as well? Yes, actually, that's pretty much predominantly how I run my practice. I never really found solace in the brick and mortar model. I like to be able to take my time to do the research and really analyze and talk to patients. I think two hours talking to them on the phone for an intake is much more valuable than seeing somebody in person for 15 minutes, especially when it comes to chronic issues. So yeah, I definitely do that. I do over the phone. I can do Skype if it's necessary to see them for whatever purposes to analyze maybe something like a rash or things like that. And I work with people from you know Europe to United States to South America. So sometimes depending on customs, there might be some issues getting some of these therapies through. But for the most part, I've had success in being able to use them with people worldwide. So we'll get to this again at the end, but I'm just going to say it now since I asked a question that your website for those that are listening or interested is healthdoll.co, H-E-A-L-T-H-D-O-L-L.co. Yes, that's correct. So now how long were you on this low-dose antigen therapy before you moved on to your herbal therapy to actually start attacking and killing off the bacteria that was in you? Um, about two months. So I was two months on the immunotherapy. I was feeling really good although not 100%. But I mean, I had really started getting my life back at that point, at least if I had to have lived my life at that point, like that, the rest of my life, I would have been okay. And so I then started with the protocol for the herbs. And there were some that were constant throughout the treatment. And then there were some that I used as certain symptoms presented, which I would have associated with certain pathogens. And I really would just self-treating or, geez, I would say, pretty heftily for four to five months. And I always worked with my body. I never pushed myself. If I, the one time I felt like I took enough herbs to get a little bit herx 
type of reaction. It wasn't even that bad, but I did have a, a small herx. I toned it down after that. I worked with my body, listened to my body. I did not want to push my body into a flare because that would just basically undo a lot of what I spent the previous two months doing, which was trying to modulate the immune system. I did not want to push it over the top. And then I started feeling really good. And then I started cutting down on some of the dosages. And honestly, I just was getting my life back to such an extent by that point that I was out there living life and I would forget to take some of these herbs or my dosages. Uh, my life was no longer revolving around my treatment and I had started realizing I needed less of them. And so I was cutting down on dosages until I got to the point where I didn't even need any more. I think something that's very important for our listeners is you were almost bedridden in pain for seven months, according to your questionnaire for this interview. Yes. Yeah. So I spent probably three or four months of that not being able to drive. I couldn't even turn my neck. So I wasn't able to drive. That was not safe. I also started having some cognitive impairment that would be sporadic, but nonetheless, it was something that was, you know, very frightening to drive to a grocery store that's literally, if you wanted to, you could walk to and get lost on my way back home, you know? So there was definitely a lot going on for me. The pain was probably the worst part of it. Not being able to get out of bed. I mean, it was a two-hour mission for me just to decide to get out of bed for the day and try to drink some matcha and to gently but slowly try to move around a little bit just so I could get to moving. You know, it was, it was definitely the worst pain I've ever had in my life. Dr. Leslie, could you distinguish an acute infection from a chronic infection for our listeners? And can you also, as a follow-up, advise them about whether or not low-dose antigen therapy would work for somebody at the chronic phase of an infection? Yes. So the low-dose immunotherapy or low-dose antigen therapy or the homeopathic versions of these, they are especially designed for the chronic illness patient. And they can be used for acute cases as well. You know, if you get immediate treatment for Lyme exposure at that point, you may not necessarily need it because your symptoms may not really be really manifesting yet. But with chronic illness patients, I feel that this is exactly the type of patient who benefits from such therapy. And I just want to circle back to that. So you were totally homebound and bedbound. And after doing this low-dose antigen therapy, you had very minor, at, you know, at worst, herxing while you were doing the herbs to kill off the bacteria, which is very unheard of when you're that sick. Yes. And in fact, I was even surprised myself because I was expecting to go through some tumultuous times. Although I knew that the plan I designed was designed to prevent that, I still was expecting to suffer a bit. And I really credit that to both the immunotherapy and also my proficient detox protocol that I did beforehand. And also the fact that um, having been a natural health professional, I was using detox protocols as a portion of my daily living regimen. And so I really did not have that accumulation of toxicity that many Lyme patients have before that they get, you know, to the state of disease that they get to. I do not have any fillings in my mouth. I've never had any conventional type of dental work besides basic cleaning. I have seen a biological dentist for the past over 10 years now. I have not eaten non-organic for, geez, probably over 15 years at this point now. So my pesticide exposure, my chemical exposure, my heavy metal exposure, all of these were relatively low. And that makes a huge difference. And that's a huge complicator of treatment when you're dealing with Lyme patients. So I will say I did have that working for me and my benefit when I went into this. And then the immune regulation and the further detox protocols really allowed me to be a good vehicle for these treatments to work. 
So because of your background as a naturopathic doctor, you were detoxing throughout your normal life. And you think that really helped you when you started to get a treatment and the kill off occurred? Yes, absolutely. Can you talk to our listeners in some more detail about what exactly your detox protocols were and which ones you feel are most appropriate for Lyme patients? Yeah, so just in daily living practices, before all of this had happened, I had always been on milk thistle. That's very liver supportive, um, and I really like that one a lot, especially if you happen to have any dark circles under your eyes. Um, there is a connection with your liver function to that, so you might want to try some milk thistle and see that you might be surprised at the improvement you get there. I also was on such things as chlorella, NSM. I took some herbals like red clover. I was on, you know, diatomaceous earth here and there, which is really good at pulling out some pathogens in the gut as well as some heavy metals and binding even with mold. In fact, I did use diatomaceous earth for mold. It works quite well. You would make sure that you get a food grade, though, I must say that. Um, and so I'd been on all these type of things beforehand for, for years. And then whenever it came down to actually dealing with Lyme, I did liposomal glutathione. So I really recommend the liposomal format. I see patients who have done the IV format and the feedback that I get from a lot of other Lyme patients is that that was not beneficial to them. It, it gave them a lot worse, more symptoms than, than what they went into the treatment um, having, but they seem to do very well with the liposomal versions. And, you know, I also made sure I did a lot of sweating. I would take very the hottest bath possible that I could tolerate with some Epsom salts, you know, with CBD bath bombs, I would make sure to also do this. And I would sometimes take herbs that would like induce me to sweat. And I would wear super layers of clothing to sleep and wrap myself with blankets so that I would sweat a lot of this out um, and wake up, you know, completely drenched, wash that off, but feel a lot better. I used various amounts of detox protocols and I pretty much would change them according to what I felt was necessary at the time. But I would say probably glutathione was a big staple for me. I will disclose, though, that that's not appropriate for everybody. Some people, genetically speaking, um, that have some issues with, you know, their sulfur pathways can react negatively to glutathione. Glutathione is, is very common among most of our guests as a tool to detox, but most of them have used IV glutathione. Can you speak to the difference between IV glutathione and the lipsomal glutathione that you just discussed? Yeah, so the IV obviously is going to be, you know, something that you get injected with. The dosages are much higher, and that might seem like it's a better idea, and maybe for some people it could be. However, if you are an ultra-sensitive patient or if you've been through some harsher kill protocols, if there's a ton of immunodysregulation and inflammation, the body becomes hyperactive and hypervigilant in how it responds to any type of stimulus at this point. Um, and so by going in and putting a mass level of something that does or induces detoxification in the body, if you're not already proficient in that, you can magnify problems. And I find that doing it slowly but surely with the liposomals brings a better response and it's much more higher in the ability to be tolerated. In addition to your low-dose antigen therapy for two months, and then after that, your four to five month herbs to kill off the bacteria, you also mentioned in your pre-interview questionnaire that you did some homeopathic lymph drainers. Can you discuss what that means and actually what they do? 
Yes, so I love using homeopathic drainers. There's ones that you can use specifically for the lymph. I have ones that they target the spinal column. I have ones that they target the brain, et cetera. Lymph in particular was an issue that was really challenging for me. It has been challenging for me since they sprayed a bunch of pesticides on my town, getting chronic illness from these vector-borne diseases, of course, only magnified that. And so I needed extra help in this area. And so I use the homeopathic lymphatic drainers. And what these do is they help induce or promote the body's natural mechanisms to perform drainage, um, which is being able to mobilize this lymph fluid so we can actually get these pathogens and the pathogenic byproducts out. Because a lot of phagotosis, which is whenever we have these immune cells that they're able to like engulf and destroy all these pathogenic cells, we have the byproduct of that generally coming out in the lymph system or the lymph system is processing this, which includes the spleen as well. So we really need to facilitate moving this along. If it becomes stagnant, which can happen with Lyme disease, we're going to just bustle up with toxins. And you've probably thought, oh, well, we do this type of you know, detox, we do this type of detox. A lot of those are all targeted at the blood, the GI tract, and other various issues or parts of the body for various other issues. But the lymph is its own special niche, and it really needs to be addressed on its own. And so that one also was a very big game changer. On a side note, for anybody that has any type of you know, circulatory issues or issues related to lymph, such as cellulite, <laughs> you know, having a puffy face, et cetera, water retention, they would be very surprised to see the results they would get from using a lymphatic drainer. Above and beyond that, you, you mentioned that you actually followed Stephen Buhner's protocol for your herbal protocol. Can you talk about how he inspired you for your herbal protocol to kill off the Lyme bacteria? Oh, absolutely. Stephen Buhner is, you know, he really deserves a Nobel Prize for his research for the Lyme disease community. His research is not just going off of what has been handed down to us as the general knowledge for what herbs are specific for what systems of the body or for what particular healing functions that they have. His research is second to none. It goes through and will actually break down the etiology of all of these diseases, how they work, and how the herbs and phytochemical constituents actually impact the disease. So it's not easy reading. If you don't have a science background, you may get intimidated and not want to finish reading it, but it's worth buying his publications, every single one of them, just to be able to have the protocol and the recommendations in there. And he gets very exact. He will say exactly what you should take for neuroborreliosis, what you should take for Bell's palsy induced by Lyme, what you should take for neurological issues, what you should take for nausea, what you should take for any type of Lyme symptom that you could ever imagine, uh, what particular herbal medicines would work best for you on those accounts. And I will say, from my experience, it was 100% spot on. Red root, for example, is something that's also very good for your lymph drainage. It helps with the spleen. I had been having some spleen spasms as I was targeting some of my treatment. And so I started on the red root and within four to five days that was gone and I never had it again. So herbal medicine can be, in my opinion, every bit as powerful as what you would find with conventional counterparts if used properly. So Dr. Leslie, you got sick about two years ago with this Lyme and other co-infections. How do you feel today? You know, I have my life back 100% and then some. I mean, I have such a meaning and purpose in my life now having, you know, overcome Lyme disease and it's something that I have become very passionate about advocating for and helping others with. As of like a handful of months ago, I opened up my practice, which was previously just aimed at helping women with women's health issues and hormone issues, hence the name Health Doll. Um, It was a modern approach to naturopathy. I've now since evolved into taking some chronic illness patients, people with multiple chemical sensitivities, people with Lyme disease, people facing 
autoimmune diseases induced by viral agents such as Epstein-Barr, things like that. And it has definitely been a lot more on my plate because these are more complicated disease models and patients to help. But it has been extremely rewarding to be able to see people that were, for example, in a wheelchair, not able to celebrate their children's birthday, be able to now take their children on their own to Disneyland. And I do have patient stories like that. And so when you know that you've made this type of a change in somebody's life, it's just something that gives me the power to run from 7 a.m. to 1 a.m. if I have to. With that said, there are a couple things that are different now. Having went through that mold exposure, I can no longer drink things like kombucha. I cannot have some of the vegan cheeses anymore. There's just a much higher sensitivity, a lower threshold for exposure for certain things. And, you know, I'm always very cautious to take care of myself, not let myself run down too much because I know that if you have that whole last straw that breaks the camel's back again, I don't want to test this and see if, you know, I would find out if I would get sick again. But all I know is right now I have my life back. I feel great. I feel as good or better than I ever did before Lyme disease. You just said that if you have mold exposure and mold sensitivities, kombucha is not good to drink. And I know many Lyme patients, including myself, uh, use kombucha regularly to help strengthen their gut health. So can you talk about why kombucha is not good for people with mold sensitivities? Well, it may not come down to the fact that it's not good for them. For some people, maybe it is an awesome healing agent. We're all bio-individual and we're all very different. Some of us, you know, have a lower threshold for mold and an inability to break it down, genetically speaking. So I'm one of those people. You can test yourself for that. There's the HLA gene that you can have done and you can see how you metabolize or break down mold. I'm homozygous for that mutation, and so I do not break them down very well. It doesn't mean that if you have this, you can't get better from mold exposure. But just after having went through that massive mold exposure on top of not having a proficiency to break things down, I just personally found myself very sensitive to these things. And I have talked to a few others who have had the same response. That will probably not be the norm for most patients. If you drink kombucha and it helps you, by all means, you should continue drinking it. In my particular case, I've just noticed that that does not allow me to continue in the way that I would want to continue. I will experience symptoms. I will have tingling. I will have certain things that I had um, when I had the mold exposure. So I just make sure that I avoid those things. And one other thing I forgot to ask you earlier was that in your pre-interview questionnaire, you also said that the BioCult probiotic was a huge game changer for you. And most of us Lymeys do take probiotics on a regular basis to help, again, promote our gut health. So what is different about this BioCult probiotic? Ironically, what happened is I used to have a much more expensive probiotic, this very fancy-smancy one that costs like probably seven times more than the BioCult does. And I got this one, the BioCult actually, by mistake. And so I started taking that because I figured I didn't want it to go to waste. Um, And that had happened right around the time that I had come back with all those gastrointestinal symptoms. So about a month after suffering with all those issues is when I had started the BioCult, about three to four weeks after that I came back from Wyoming. And that started working for me within like the first week. I mean, it wasn't all in remission, but I started having massive gut improvement. And then I had posted about this and then I had been in touch with the company because obviously they saw my post and they had sent me some of their research because it turns out that they pay for a ton of research. They get some of the best probiotic research out there done for their products clinically done at the highest level, which is the double-blind placebo-controlled randomized study. I went through a lot of their research. I saw that a lot of their strains, particularly in that particular product, were very good for people that were lending toward autoimmunity, which was happening to me at that time. 
And so it was just very effective for me. And I tried a couple of their other products after that, such as the Candida one that they have. I've liked every single product that I've tried. They did just actually come out with a new probiotic. It's the first of its kind. It's a probiotic intended to target migraines. So, you know, the gut and the brain axis is very much involved in your overall health. So the gut has often been deemed the second brain and with good reason. And so they've done a lot of research to show how that certain strains of probiotic bacteria can impact the incidence of chronic migraine. And they did a clinical study for this and they saw that the individuals who took this biocote migraine, which is for the migraine, the chronic head pain, they reduced their onset of incidence of migraines by 45%. Isn't that astounding? This BioCult probiotic would be beneficial for our listeners that are experiencing immune system problems or potentially any sort of autoimmune type issues. I believe so, yeah. I have given it to several autoimmune patients and they have loved it as well. You know, and like I said, some of the strains are attributed to having a good immunomodulating effect. Of course, there's just your other very common strains such as lactobacillus and all of that that function just for good overall gut health. But they really take a lot of care and a lot of research behind the products that they create. And what's really amazing is that they're honestly very affordable. You can find them on Amazon for about 20 bucks and and under. And again, I was paying like seven times more for a probiotic that did not help me at all as much as what BioCult did. Could you outline for our listeners all the different ways you make yourself available? Yes. So I am on Instagram. I have a Facebook though. I'm still trying to learn how I'm even supposed to navigate that. People can reach out to me on Instagram direct message. I am very busy on the DMs. I get a lot. And the way that Instagram organizes the inbox, I don't necessarily sometimes see them all. Sometimes I miss them. So they can go to my website. They can either go through the chat system there or they can send me an email directly. That's probably the best way to reach me is through the email. I also on the website have services that people can book straight away or they can message me first for a consult. I usually provide the opportunity to speak with me for 20 minutes as a gratis consult just to answer some basic questions and let people feel out whether or not that they think that their case and myself would be compatible in working together. My final question, which is the last question we ask every one of our guests, if tomorrow morning you woke up and you found a tick biting you on your leg, what would you do? I've already faced that scenario. Um, you know, I remove it properly and I took some astralagus and I treated with some woodland essence herbs, which are designed to prevent infection from such vectors as well as soothe the skin. Woodland essence makes it, I think it's called afterbite. And, you know, I just refused to let the prior experience determine what I would or would not do the rest of my life. And I've been fine. So I still continue to live my life cautious and I'm careful, but I'm not stopping my life on the account of what happened in the past. I look to the future. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Dr. Veronica Leslie. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Veronica Leslie and her tick disease journey, please visit her Instagram at healthdoll.co or visit her website at www.healthdoll.co. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint. This was inspired by the information that has been provided by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any improvements you would like to suggest. Fourth, Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank our listeners for their past comments. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. 
We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.